Yes, good. I decided I'd better use the earbuds. We're having very heavy rain, and I was afraid it might even drown me out. So, and I'm just saying, I am so enjoying watching you all come in and get settled on your various places that you're settling on, uh, your seats. It's often one of my favorite times in an actual meditation hall, watching the people come in as we get ready for a talk. So I want to talk tonight about both intention and view. And how do we get, how do we get from where we are to a place of a really wide and spacious view? So we'll start with intention first and then move along. And so Bob last night talked, or two nights ago, about how we are in a very strange time. I think we've said that so many times during the course of this retreat. And I'm sure this is true for both Bob and for JD. Um, I have thought, and myself, I've thought so often of how do I how do I teach? You know, each Sunday would come around and I would go, oh my goodness, how do I teach now? You know, how do I teach when um, so much is happening for so many people? And, um, and the question is, of course, what do you, my dear Dharma friends, need to hear what will be helpful at a time like this. So impermanence and aging are definitely up, aren't they? You know, we've talked about it a lot. Bob talked about how he's already 67, a ripe old 67. And JD is a mere sprout at whatever point in the 50s she is, you know. And I'm actually just finishing up my eighth decade. I've arrived at my 79th birthday in October. And if there's nothing else that is clear right now, the uncertainty of life is very, very clear. So many thousands have died and so many more are left with long-term effects. Today, there was a little piece in one of the news feeds I get about how someone is dying every 33 seconds. So let's see, 45-minute talk. Let's just say two a minute. That's between now and the time of the end of the talk, 90 more people, I think, if I have that right. No, yes, I think so. You can do the math. It's a lot. And... So when I think about this, you know, this whole process of aging and dying, um, one of the people I think about a lot is my dad. And so 25 years ago, he was coming to the end of his life. And I spent a lot of time with him during those years, as I know a number of you have with family and friends who are dying. And we could see the end coming. It was very, very clear. And he actually welcomed it. He was quite ready to go. In fact, he was often grouchy because he he was still here. He'd say to me, how come I'm still here? 
how come I'm not dead yet? And I would say, well, <laughs> I guess because it's not quite time. And But because I had the great blessing of spending quite a bit of time with him then, one day I found myself thinking, he has no future. He has no future. You know, we're so used to having a future. You know, we're so used to saying next week or next month or next year uh, or even tomorrow. And, you know, he clearly didn't have it. And we not so clearly don't have it either because, of course, we never, ever know. And, you know, he went through the whole process. As time went on, his memory began to fail. And one of the things that was fun for, for all of us, actually, is he discovered he could watch the same movie over and over and over again. So he knew he loved the movie Cold Mountain. And about every second or third down, night, he'd sit down and watch it again because he didn't remember what happened. He just knew that he liked it. So, you know, it had its points. So as I think about him and I think about the pandemic, of course, we all think then about our own situation. So a few weeks ago, right after that 79th birthday, I took a course uh, on women mystics from Mirabai Star. It was a wonderful teaching. And the first class, she brought in two women from the Hindu tradition, Mirabai, also known as Mira and Alala. So Mirabai says, don't forget love. It will bring you all the madness you need to unfurl yourself across the universe. It will bring you all the madness you need to unfurl yourself across the universe. And Lala says, to learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished, joyous and silent, the waking that met me there. And I heard that and my heart just went, yes, you know, this is what I want. This is, this is with what future I have left. This is what I want to unfurl myself across the universe. It's really, you know, at 79, it's time to get real. You know, just like Pratibha said that first night, you know, you really have to pay attention and it's time to be as absolutely as alive as I possibly can and to be fully present in as many moments I can with my eyes wide open. So it's a question for all of us, isn't it? What is your intention? What if you knew you had only a certain amount of time left? Some of you may already have that knowledge. Some years ago, Stephen Levine wrote a book called A Year to Live, And many, many, many people have taken that on as a practice, taken a year and lived it as though it were their last year and paid attention to what things they needed to do. And I so loved it in Bob's talk. He had that lovely image about, you know, your life, it's like the breath of the buffalo from the Native American tradition, that breath that you can see for just a moment hanging there in the frosty air, and then it's gone, you know? And from the Buddhist scriptures, thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, 
a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. It's that brief. A phantom and a dream, a bubble, you know, those, we've all watched bubbles, you know, float and then it's gone. And it seems so, hmm, I don't know what the word I want really is, so important, so wonderful to pay attention because there are so many things that are so incredibly beautiful in this world, as difficult as it also is. Meister Eckhart once said that if you only once, only once, really, that's the important word, really saw a tree, you would never need to listen to another sermon. Or we might say you would never need to listen to another Dharma talk. If you just really, really saw the tree. Might be the tree, it might be a kitten, it might be your beloved It might be the loaf of good bread or the beauty of the meditation hall or your own meditation space as you come in. So that sense of impermanence often is what creates some intention about practice. It it creates some fire underneath you to go in the direction that you need to. But then, okay, what do we do with that intention? How do we find out where to go? So each of you, You know, we are each, you've each begun to wake up. You wouldn't be here if that were not true. You know that it helps to do this practice. You are learning how to be here when the sun begins to rise, you know, so that you'll see it when it happens. And you've been sitting, we've talked about it in both of my groups today, You know, often with the somewhat crazed mind that Bob mentioned early on, certainly present with all the obscurations and obstacles and coverings that J.D. mentioned yesterday, with all of your stories that you carry, you know, the ones from the past and the ones from the present, and all of the stuff of the present moment. So here's a story that I really love about practice, and it's a story about a prisoner and he it's a Sufi story and the prisoner has been locked up unjustly and he's going to be there a really really long time maybe life but he does have a few visitors you know and one day one of them comes and he's bearing a gift for our prisoner And as a gift, obviously, it's made it through the inspection of gifts that they always have in prisons. And the gift is a prayer rug. And it's for the prisoner to use when he does his daily recitations, which all Muslims are required to do five times a day. And he's a little annoyed. I mean, a prayer rug? Really? You know? And couldn't it have been something more useful, like a map, maybe, or a key, or at least a package of much better food, you know? But no, it was a prayer rug, and that was it. And it was a nice one. So he thought he might as well put it to use. So he 
five times a day would roll the prayer rug out and he would do his prostrations, which meant his face was right down there on the prayer rug. And then he rolled it back up and then later he'd unroll it and he'd do the prostrations again. And, and after a while, he began to realize something as he looked up close and personal with that prayer rug. And he realized that in fact, there was a map that was woven into the prayer rug. And it was a map, a diagram really, of the workings of the lock of the prison. And so with that information, he was able to escape. Yeah? So his practice led him to the key. So that's us, right? We're each a prisoner in our own situation. And over and over and over again, classes, retreats, books, recordings, we have been handed various prayer rugs to use. And all of us, we struggle with using it, right? Creating a consistent, nourishing daily practice seems to be really, really difficult. Several people, though, have mentioned that having so much time at home has actually helped. So maybe we're learning. I don't know. But sometimes our goals are kind of grandiose. You know, you leave a retreat and you think, okay, my practice is going to be exactly like it is at the retreat. That's pretty hard to do, you know. And it's really important to remember. I looked it up, actually. Those, those prostrations take about five minutes apiece. So our prisoner was doing about 25 minutes of practice every day. That was what he needed to see the pattern. I think, though, this is also where intention comes in, because you have to want to escape. You have to want to get out of your prison. Often our prisons are pretty comfortable. We get you know, it's not so bad here. might be okay if it stayed the same. But he really wanted to get out, and he did his prayers, and then he saw the secret. And, you know, I've thought a lot about we are practicing in such a difficult time, and it's certainly, you know, it's been a time of so much political stress as well as the COVID thing. And I know many, many people have thought, this is just never, ever going to end. We are not going to get out of here. And if anything, it's going to be worse. And that led me to reflect again on uh, a woman uh, who was pretty interesting. Her name was Eddie Hillison. And she was Jewish. And she lived in Holland at the time of the beginning of the Second World War. And right around the time that things got very difficult, she also developed a very deep spiritual practice. And she went on to serve the people in the camp where she was in Holland. And then she was ultimately sent to um, Auschwitz where she died. And, um, Here are her last words that were written on a postcard that she threw out of the train as she was taken to Auschwitz. She says, opening the Bible at random, I find this. The Lord is my high tower. I'm sitting on my rucksack in the middle of a full freight car. 
father, mother, and Misha, her brother, are a few cars away. In the end, the departure came without warning. We left the camp singing. Thank you for all your kindness and care. Is that amazing or what? We left the camp singing. How do you do that? How do you find that freedom in that kind of a situation? How do we find freedom in our situations here and now? And it's so important in this time of plague and time of political turmoil and anger and unrest. And maybe the answer, just maybe the answer is in the everyday ordinariness of our practice. Coping with the obstacles that come, coping with the crazy mind and putting our butts down on that cushion doing the studying and the journaling and the art and all of the other things that are also part of our practice at this time. So then the question sort of comes, well, where are the gates for awakening? You know, do I have to do something big? You know, we had a conversation in in one of my groups today about, is it necessary to go to Burma and be a monk or a nun for a period of time? Not so possible right now. Um, (laughs) <laughs> it was easy for me to say, no, it's not necessary because I've never done it. But, you know, we all have these ideas about, well, maybe it has to be some really big kind of thing that we do in order to awaken. So a couple of weeks ago, a koan came my way. So here it is. As the world honored one was walking with the congregation he pointed to the ground and said, this spot is good to build a sanctuary. Indra, the emperor of the gods, took a blade of grass, stuck it in the ground and said, the sanctuary is built. The world honored one smiled. Hmm. I love koans. I really do because I love the way they rattle around in my heart, in my mind. They're often unsolvable, unfigurable. Um, but if I just let them be there, then different things kind of, they begin to sprout around them. You know, they're, they're a kind of catalyst. So this seems to point towards, there's no need to do anything dramatic and huge. It's already there. The blade of grass has been stuck in the ground and the sanctuary is here, apparently. Meister Eckhart, again, says, God is at home. You are the one who has gone out for a walk. Or you could say it, since we're in a Buddhist retreat, the Buddha is at home. The Buddha is within. You are the one who's not paying attention. So each moment has the potential for awakening. Each moment, each problem of your life is a koan, challenging you to be with it, to let it cook you, to open to it, to open you to a new place in your heart. 
It might be the koan of the extended torture of this election that just never ever seems to be completely over. It might be the koan of a dying patient or of a difficult diagnosis or the pandemic itself or the koan of so many people lost. You know, my husband was saying to me when we had lunch a bit ago that it's a 9-11 every day of the week. That many people. Or maybe some of you actually have an official koan that some Zen teacher gave you at one point in your life. So we sit with these koans and the and we begin to see that the gate isn't someplace special. The gate is deeply in the any present moment. There is the potential for complete and utter freedom at any moment in any situation. And when we begin to see that, things begin to change. So that brings us to view. And hmm, I was thinking as I was pondering this talk about the many, many times that I've been in various back countries hiking from the time I was a child up until relatively recently. I'm not quite so mobile as I used to be. And, you know, especially if you're climbing something that has a top, as you're on your way up, it's very rare that you actually see the top, right? You don't get to see the view before you get to the top. You see little bits and pieces, and you may see some lovely, lovely things, and possibly really important things, this view and that view and the next view. And sometimes you think you're nearly there, and then you get up a little higher, and you realize, no, there's quite a bit more to go. So I think it's a little bit like that, you know, that we don't see everything right away. And we certainly don't see the wisdom that is perhaps innate, our own Buddha nature, if you will. Um, and that's what we need. We need that place, that view, in order to, to be able to survive all of this difficult time. Because really the question is, you know, how, do, how do we have equanimity? And how do we have a resilient heart as we face this? How do we maintain compassion and gladness and kindness and equanimity, even as we worry about disease and death and worry about the political situation? So in recent weeks, it's really fun to be taking courses because then I get to bring new stuff into my talks. So in recent weeks, I've been hanging out with someone um, in, a, in another class. And I just found out that um, just yesterday or today that Thomas Merton himself, the great Christian mystic, Buddhist, amazing being, um, also considered this person a friend um, in the last years of his life. And um, she lived in the 14th century. So this isn't somebody that either of us ever knew personally. And this is Julian of Norwich. And Julian lived actually during the time of the Black Death. 
which was an incredibly difficult pandemic. It took the lives of about half of the population of Europe over a period of about 100 years. And it would come through in successive waves again and again and again and again. And it was horrific. It was really horrific. There was no understanding of disease at the time or how to care for it. It was a pretty mm, extreme disease in the first place. There was certainly no notion of cure or vaccine. It just was there and it came through and it did what it did. So Julian um, lost um, a husband, we believe, and all of her children. And she herself actually came very, very close to dying. And as was true of a very few people, somehow she survived, even though at one point, everybody around her thought she had actually died. And many of you probably know her most famous words because they get around in spiritual circles. So at one point she said, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and every kind of thing shall be well. Now that's a pretty amazing thing to say when you've been through what she's been through. And what she did, she did kind of a big thing actually. She became an anchorite, which meant that she put herself in a cell. You could imagine maybe your own cell where you are right now. And she was walled in and she did not go out again for the rest of her life. She was about 30 when that happened. And um, they believe she had a window that looked out onto the town square and another window that looked into the church because of course she was a practicing Catholic as everybody in that area was. And there seems to be some evidence that she was sort of like the resident um, psychotherapist and counselor for her community. People would come by the window and bring their problems to her and she would talk to them and share with them. So she really knew suffering. She could see you know, the people who had lost people that they loved. And of course, some of these people died in one of the waves that came through afterward. And so her heart must have been broken over and over again. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, I, I'm always aware after we start seeing all of you in the retreat and hearing your stories that um, there's a lot of broken hearts. There's a lot of broken hearts. But that's the nature of the heart, right? It's the nature of the heart to break. And we all probably know that poem that I learned early on in my practice that says, my heart is broken. And then the next line is open. My heart is broken, open. So, you know, it may even be a requirement that hearts get broken. I'm not so sure, but I think possible. Joanna Macy, who is a wonderful woman scholar and mystic and very involved in the engaged Buddhist world, says, when your heart breaks, the whole universe can pour through. When your heart breaks, the whole universe can, be, can, break, can pour through. So we're going to need these hearts. 
We're going to need hearts like Julian's and Joanna's and so many other amazing beings. We need hearts that are resilient and spacious. We're going to need what are sometimes called the four immeasurables, but we call them in our tradition more often the Brahma Viharas. But immeasurable is possibly a really helpful word right now. Immeasurable love and immeasurable compassion and immeasurable joy and immeasurable equanimity. And that sense of immeasurable really begins to give you um, a feeling for that kind of view, its vastness and its spaciousness. Because I think this is where practice brings us. You know, we wake up to impermanence. We wake, wake up to the notion that our time is very limited. We find our prayer rug, whatever it is, and we use it. And we decipher the code that helps to unlock our prism. And we discover that we are the ones who have been missing. We haven't been present, right? And so we, and that whatever you want to call it, the sacred, your Buddha nature, Nibbana, ground, the mystery, it's been there all along while we were out walking or working or sleeping. So as we walk this path, then the eyes of the heart open, as the heart opens, our view becomes wide and spacious. So Bob talked about his astrophysicist son who keeps saying, I don't know, or we don't know. And many of you know that I really love exploring all of the connections between our modern knowledge of astronomy and physics and our knowledge of the inner journey. And I think I don't know. I don't know is not the ignorance that JD spoke of last night. I often use the word delusion for that kind of ignorance. I don't know is that deeply true resonant statement that says, all I've got is this, four inches of gray matter, right? How could I possibly know what is ultimately true? I've been very taken for a couple of years now. There's a, apparently a community of people who live, I think, down in South America. And they teach their children. So you know how it is as, as babies begin to have words. You teach them the names of things, right? But they don't do it quite the way we do. They say... We call this a tree. We call this a glass of water. We call this a hand. Just one step away from saying it is a hand or it is a glass. I mean, who knows what it is, really? I think what also happens is the view begins to widen as we if we're lucky, we lose the need to exclude things from our world. I've been pondering recently how in my own spiritual journey, as I have gone from one stage to another, I've often 
shut the door on the previous stage and dismissed it. It didn't matter anymore. So, you know, I questioned the agnostic views of the family that I grew up in and turned my back on on them and much that was valuable there. And then for a while, I uh, was deeply immersed in the Christian world, Catholic and Anglican. But it, I was missing the contemplative, meditative piece. And after a while, I turned my back on that and entered the Buddhist world. And each time I turned my back, I just, it was like it wasn't part of my world anymore. And what I'm beginning to see is that's not needed. And in fact, some of it has come back for me. And that there is the possibility of being inclusive instead of exclusive. There's so much pain in our world right now that comes from being, you know, different groups being exclusive and this whole sense that it's us and them and, you know, we are the only ones who are right. But maybe that's not necessary. Maybe it's not necessary even within our own beings that different pieces of my journey were not a mistake. They were not a mistake. They were just that stage in my journey. And it seems like it's getting bigger. Now, I really want to acknowledge here, I know that especially any reference to childhood religion and families and whatnot, there are times when there has been terrible wounding, lots of difficulty. It's totally appropriate to turn your back on it. And that's also happened, in fact, in the Buddhist world. It's not just other religions that have that. And somehow finding a way to keep the heart open, even if you don't have any connection to that anymore, you can still wish those people well, send metta. And that's really what forgiveness is all about. So the estimate is that there are two trillion galaxies in the universe. That's the latest count. It keeps going up. I can't even imagine what two trillion would look like, you know, to be interesting to make a chain of paper clips or something that was two trillion long. How big would it be? Enormous. And of course, who knows out there, how many planets that are circling around those, the, you know, in those galaxies. And if there's any planets that have beings on them who are maybe having their own spiritual journeys in some way that we have no idea, you know, what would, what would that be? And maybe we don't need to, I think we have enough variation here on our planet to keep us busy. But I do think, (coughs) you know, maybe, just maybe we can move away from making those who are different from us wrong. And one of my teachers, one of my recent teachers likes to say, (coughs) 
that those of us who are what he likes to call the green meanies are just as um, guilty of this as um, the more conservative people. So maybe there is a way to be inclusive and not to be exclusive, even when we don't agree. As I was writing this, I began to think, always interested in what resonates when I write. And I began to think about Martin Luther King. And I was actually present in 1963 at that March on Washington when he gave the, um, that famous dream about, you know, I have a dream. And what I love about that, I, I looked it up and read through it again in the sense of, you know, that maybe it could be this way. Maybe there could be this inclusive nation. Maybe his children would be, you know, living in a place that was safe and, um, and that there wouldn't be this, this need to um, divide. And he says, we, maybe with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony, he said, of brotherhood. We would probably now say, what, of humanity, I would guess. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, to know that we will be free one day. So this is an amazing view, isn't it? And I think, you know, I think as we do this practice, as we unravel the code of the prayer rug, as we see more and more, and then we get to this place where we can see, maybe it's not even the real top, who knows, but we do see more. And it's, it's, I found it very touching as I was thinking about it to think that there are also people who have this greatness of view and who can speak it in a visionary way for all of us. So I wanted to end with the um, Tibetan version of the four immeasurables. Some of you may know it. Feel free to say it along with me if you do. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness. May they be free of suffering and the cause of suffering. May they never be dissociated from the supreme happiness, which is without suffering. May they remain in the boundless equanimity, free from both attachment to close ones and rejection of others. So may we all, with a great fire of intention, do our practices and come to this space of boundless, immeasurable view. So thank you very, very much for listening. And now it's time for some walking before the meta practice at 3.30. So thank you. <laughs>